0: Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs, mostly in the tech software space, about how they build their businesses. And when I was uh, told about today's guest, I said, no, I don't think it's going to be a good fit. (laughs) And uh, I went back and forth several times because I said, Animas Coaching, which is what Nick Bolton, today's uh, founder, launched It's a transformational coaching school. Coaching schools seem a little bit outside of the focus of what I do on Mixergy. But as I found out about the the entrepreneurial journey, I said, oh, this is very similar to what what other businesses go through. This is very interesting. I want to find out how he did this. And so I invited him on here to talk about how he built up his business. The the thing that I'm, I'm most fascinated by is that, first of all, how he got clients in, and Nick, you must know this, your space is... It's mature, right? There's been coaching, life coaching now for years and years, um, full of brand names. I remember going to like a Tony Robbins coaching thing where one of their certified people was going to work with me. A lot of those brand names actually don't deliver, which ruins the reputation of the whole space. And I, and I don't yet see any new technology that's going to make things any different. And still, you, you went into the space. You ended up doing well. I want to find out how you did this. I want to find out about some of the structural changes that you had to make in order to make the business grow and and, and so much more. And we could do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first, if you're hosting a website and you're listening to me, you need to know I host on HostGator. That's who hosts my website. I highly recommend them. And you should go sign up at HostGator.com Mixergy. And the second, if you're not yet charging for your content and you're just expecting advertising revenue to make you a fortune, I think... I think it's kind of late for that. And it's also not a great business model to be in um, exclusively. Obviously, I'm doing ads, right? I think it's great. I don't want anyone to depend exclusively on ads. I think it's better to just sell directly to your audience. And so I'm going to suggest that you go sign up for Memberful at memberful.com slash Mixergy. I'll talk about those later. But first, Nick, good to have you here.
1: Well, thank you very much, Andrew. <laughs> really, really good to
0: be here. <laughs> Do you feel comfortable saying publicly what your revenue is? I've got it here on my screen and it's, oh, sure. it's strong. Sure. Sure.
1: This year, I think we're going to be heading to around three and a half did you do last year? Uh, last year, we did 2.5 2. million.
0: Profitable?
1: Uh, very profitable. We did about 1.2 million profit last year.
0: And is it just you now who's owning the business? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. And you're the guy also who went out and you looked for coaches. You're the person who went out and, and created the methodology and also are running the business. And I want to find out how you did it. It all started for you though, when you're working as a bank manager and you hated it, right? And you said, I need something different. What did can you give me an example of what you hated about being a bank manager that made you say I've got to jump into entrepreneurship?
1: <laughs> well, maybe I'll give you an example of what I liked about it. That might be easier to. <laughs>
0: to fit into this podcast. Um,
1: you know, I, I'm just- Wait, are you saying you're going to
0: hold back on some of the problems about being a bank manager? <laughs> I,
1: you know, I think, I think I'm think i a classic entrepreneur and you'll be very familiar with this, Andrew, is that most entrepreneurs just aren't good employees. I was exceptionally good at being interviewed. Um, I, I used to turn up to an interview and people would think, oh, this is it. We've got like genius on our hands at last. We're going to get somebody who's going to be absolutely brilliant in their job. And then I was just hopeless because I was just a bad employee. I just didn't like working for somebody. I didn't like that feeling of being restricted to, um, you know, when could I take a holiday or, or what my job was and all this kind of stuff. However, however, what I would say is a little bit like Steve Jobs, where he talks about looking at the breadcrumbs later in life. One of the things I recognize is how invaluable that experience was for me looking back as an entrepreneur. I learned about budgeting. I learned about sales. I learned about customer service. I learned about team management. All this I mean, I studied philosophy. It wasn't like I did a business degree. I studied philosophy, um, ended up being a bank manager by accident, and, but it taught me a lot of good foundational stuff that was really helpful later. didn't mean I enjoyed it at the time, but it was really, really useful.
0: I always felt like I missed out a lot on my business education by not having a formal job with someone who I admired mm. enough that I wanted to be like. I, I did when I was in school, but not as an adult after school. Okay. And so you didn't like it. I understand why. You then had a change in your marriage, which then changed. <laughs> what happened? Which then changed your direction. Yeah. Line. I mean,
1: I <laughs> I didn't think I'd be going to this so soon. Um, uh, so basically, when I was 15 and I met my then girlfriend, uh, we, I, Proposed when I was seventeen, we got married at twenty-one, um, and it was just a classic story of what on earth did I do that for? And you know, I, I went through a lot of my twenties, recognizing I'd made a mistake, but but I was a very different person then. I didn't have the personal strength to decide what I really wanted, so I kind of suffered it for quite a long time, and. Uh, you know, only once I decided enough was enough and I left in a pretty cowardly way at the time, um, albeit, you know, she did pretty well from it financially. But nonetheless, I, I, the way I dealt with it was pretty cowardly and was pretty, you know, it's kind of the instrumental kind of moment for me that made me realize, hold on, Nick, you've got to wake up. But that was the catalyst for making all the other changes, changing my career, changing everything. I, went, I, I mean, I left her with a four bedroom house and I moved into a flat what you might call an apartment, or but we call it a flat here. I moved into a flat, where, and this is absolutely true, Andrew. Every time the guy above took a shower, his dirty water would, it would leak through my ceiling, and it would drip into a bucket, which I would have to then empty, oh. uh, and it eventually short-fused my electricity. But you know what? I was the happiest person in the world because I finally regained my freedom and my sense of control of my life. And that was really, you know, I don't think of anything before the age of 28 being the real me. I really don't. It feels like that was some weird illusory character that lived a completely different
0: life. So you were just living the was... life that you had committed to by getting into a relationship, by by following through with what you were supposed to do. Got it. And then what was the thing that you did cowardly to get out?
1: Well, I, 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 I goodness, sorry, this is gonna get personal, but uh, I, I um, told her I didn't love her at one point. She then kind of went very dramatic. So I said, oh, no, no, okay, we'll make it work. But I knew mentally it's over. And so a month later, I, I, I dropped her off to work and I went home, packed the car, left a note on the, on the mirror saying, one day you'll realise this is for the best. Bear in mind, I'm like a child. You know, I've gone from being a child to being married. And of course, that's not how it ends. You've then got to go through a hideous divorce. But, but at that point, I just needed to get out mentally, create a space. And I just literally packed the car and left. That was it. And then, of course, you know, I went to my parents for two weeks and then I had to face the consequences.
0: And then that's what led you to start your very first business. You were running conferences on Hmm. social issues. Like what? So it
1: wasn't quite that way. What happened was... um, So one of the the things about me is I've realized I'm not particularly creative, but I'm very good at seeing what other people do and doing it better. So what happened after I left my wife, I I got a job with one of my ex-clients from being a bank manager, and he asked me to go and work for him. And he ran a conference company, and we would research conferences on social issues, could be domestic violence, child protection, homelessness, you name it. We would put together a conference with various speakers from government and and, and governmental bodies, and then we would market it to the public sector, and they would pay for delicate places. And he and I had a funny relationship because he kind of got me on on one basis, and I ended up just doing invoices. And like, hold on, how did that happen? I was meant to be meant. You know, I was meant to be kind of doing this other thing. And so in the end, I went, you know what? I can do this. I can do it better than he's doing it. And so I just set up my own company and, uh, and started started being a competitor. Uh,
0: and the idea was that. You would find a topic like maybe domestic violence, yeah. you would bring the experts in who could talk about it and train it. Then yeah. you would bring in, say, the police and government officials and others who needed to learn about it. And that was the whole business. The speakers get paid. I guess the speakers got paid, right? And then yeah. you and you then um, so you pay the speakers, you paid for the space and obviously you sold tickets. How did you sell tickets to bring in revenue? Very, very easy.
1: I mean, this was, you know, this was what, when was this, 2000, 2001? Okay. It was very easy. I, I had a massive database of every police station in the UK, every health department, every social service department, blah, 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 on good old-fashioned Excel. We would then do direct mail, brochures. It was literally, and it was literally paper mail stuff paper mail, huh. hand-stuffing the brochure into an envelope, labeling with the sticker, rubber stamping it, and I would do two and a half thousand, three thousand of those for every conference. I was doing that single-handed. I mean, you know, it's the classic story where you do every little job yourself at first, the bookkeeping, the Mm. mail-shotting. I was chairing the conference. I was doing everything. It was unbelievable, but it was brilliant. I
0: loved it. Did you feel any remorse or any issues with competing with your previous friend and boss? Um, A little bit later, not straight away. But funny enough, a
1: few years later I met him in a shopping center I and mean, he was walking towards me and I was like, oh, this is gonna be a bit embarrassing. But it was lovely. We sat down and we had a coffee and we just kind of laughed about the old times and the conflicts. It was really, really nice. And he'd moved on and I was still doing the conference business. So it was fine, you know. It was it was kind of part of the part of the journey, isn't it? Your 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 employees become your competitors sometimes.
0: What was it that helped you sell those tickets in spaces that you weren't super familiar with? Was it an authoritative name for the conference? Was it having yeah. one headliner speaker? What was it? it?
1: It's a great question. I would say two things. It was a story. You know, I always looked at every conference as a story. It had to tell a story from top down. So you needed a big picture. You know, what's this novel about? And you needed moments of suspense and you needed moments of, you know, of, of relief, and that's what a conference should do. And I would then find the names that would pull people in. But actually, the best speakers were the ones who nobody knew about, who were doing the work. You know, the actual youth worker who was working with gangs in East London, not the government minister who was blabbing on about policy. He was or she was the draw. But the real person that was doing right. the work was was that was that youth worker
0: or whoever. How did, how did you know who would be a good speaker and who wouldn't? Did you? Did you listen to their tapes? Did you do something else? That's one of the challenges. Mm, It is one of the challenges. No, I
1: didn't. I mean, if I were to start all this again, those were lessons I would learn. But no, I didn't. In fact, I remember doing something on victim support. Victim and Witness Protection. And I remember thinking, this is the literally the best conference I could put together. It was all the biggest names from the Crime Prosecution Service, from the government, from the court service, from Witness Protection. My goodness, it was the worst conference I'd ever done. It was so boring. Nobody was willing to go out on a limb. Nobody said anything interesting because they were all protecting their professional reputations. It was so dull. I so, no, I should have done more of that. But to be honest, you know, you kind of get good at sussing out. I never forget one funny little story. We were doing something on homelessness, and I had the director of housing for a particular local authority. And I said, And now I'd like to welcome to the podium, blah, blah, blah. And she walked up to the podium. She took a breath and then just fainted. Bang, hit oh, the wow. ground. Just just fainted. It was unbelievable. And I had to get like one of her staff who was just a junior member, had who'd never spoken in public before, had to come up to the po- podium and deliver the presentation it was really it was really quite a, amusing looking back my worst she was, was
0: mixergy started as as an events um business and my worst mm-hmm. was we were organizing this event and i was offered this incredible name football player which i didn't know anything about i googled him he seemed he seemed incredible and so i said okay let's let him speak he gets up and he starts doing this whole rant about god nothing like interesting no story just like empty god over and over then he shifts to talking about the news but again no understanding of the news just talking about the news as a way of sounding or thinking that he sounds smart and I don't know what he did after that. I couldn't stomach it. I just walked I walked out of the room subtly because people were watching, and I paced because I just I just said, I'm never going to allow this to happen again. I have to listen to what people are saying. I have to guide them somehow. And then I became a bit of a control freak. I started to do interviews instead of letting people speak because I knew that I could at least move things along if they if they were off topic there it's quite It's quite interesting, Andrew. You've had a
1: similar journey to me in that sense because what happened for me, was it was the conference business that led me to start my coaching school? Simply because I just thought, my goodness, I run these conferences and nothing ever changes. Same speakers, same statistics, same delegates, same moaning. Nothing's happening. How do I actually create change? So uh, instead of letting the of speakers
0: teach, you said. I'm going to find a way to teach an audience instead of counting on somebody who's done something well, or who's a big name to change people by speaking. I'm, you decided you were going to do better coaching. Is that it? Or walk me? Yes, in a sense, but, but bearing in mind, coaching isn't me being the expert It's making the
1: expert, the person that wants the change. And so what I was thinking is in this room, let's say it's domestic violence in this room, everybody's here because they work in domestic violence they probably have a much better idea of what the solution is than that government minister. So what if I can find a space, a way to get them to do the work so that they are sharing their best practice and what they struggle with and who's got answers to their particular challenges. Uh, How do I create a space where they do the thinking rather than they get presented to? And that
0: was the real clinch for me. That's when I started to think, what's this thing called coaching? And so when you said, I'm interested in coaching. What's the first step you took to become a coach, and to know what the process is? To mm, interesting.
1: You know, you know, back back then, this is still the early two thousands. Um, coaching wasn't a, a really well recognized and professionalized, you know, industry, and so you could pretty much say I'm a coach just like that and you still can but it's becoming harder i would say and so i just read a lot of books on how to facilitate and how to you know draw people out to think for themselves and just started doing it and i remember doing my first one on domestic violence it was that's the thing why domestic violence always comes to me is because that was one of my kind of not only was it a big seller and that sounds horrible to say doesn't it but it always was commercially very good for me um as, as a conference but also it was the first time i did coaching and i thought there must be a way we can make an impact on domestic violence where the actual people who do the service do the thinking. And so it's, that, was, that was a really critical moment. Later on, like mid-2000s, I then formally trained as a coach, and that was where my proper journey to, to the coaching profession began.
0: You told our producer at one point you were living on a boat and you were on the verge of bankruptcy. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, why? It seemed like this conference business was doing pretty well.
1: Let me cast my mind back to that. So that was 2000 and. Oh, yeah, of course. That's why. So what happened is I got married a second time. (laughs) I got married a second time and I got divorced a second time. And I've always been ludicrously generous to people in my life, particularly exes. And um, and so I decided we were living in a really beautiful apartment in the Docklands in East London. Really gorgeous views over the O2 and uh, over Canary Wharf. And it was, you know, I was kind of chained into a a £10,000 net expenditure every month just to kind of maintain lifestyle. And so when I divorced my wife, then um, I gave a, a fair amount of money to, to kind of set herself up and with a business that she really wanted to do. She was a fabric fabric kind of broker. And at the same time, so I paid her rent for a year in a nice apartment. And then I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm completely broke. So I thought, let me let me like buy a really, really old boat, sell my apartment in London, pretty much at break even and move on to a boat. And I did that for about a year and a half. And I really, really loved it, but part of the problem Andrew, was I kind of forgot to run my business. I was so enamored with just cruising around the UK in a boat every day, just cruising from here to there, sleeping there, cruising the next day, and I kind of just fell out of love with my business. And then I realized that wow, you're gonna you're gonna go bankrupt. That sounds, it was by the way,
0: lovely to be able to just get on a boat, be on your boat. And then move it anywhere you want. It's kind of like the RV life, mm-hmm. except a lot more interesting. Can you just dock it wherever you wherever you wanted?
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, there's a there's about three mile, three thousand miles of canals and rivers that are interconnected through the UK,
0: and you can basically just cruise, <laughs> you know, cruise your life away. Wow. And then what would you do when you landed somewhere? Would you go out at night? Would you go explore? yeah, sometimes I mean, it
1: depends sometimes you're in the middle of the countryside in the middle of nowhere, and then sometimes you're in the middle of London, sometimes Birmingham. You could be, you know, anywhere. And we've just come off our, my second stint of doing that. My wife and I, my my third wife, my third wife, and I have just come off two years living on a brand new boat. I mean, we've gone full circle and it's it's been it's been really yeah, and I think it's interesting
0: why you did it more recently. Um, but let's continue then with the story. So yeah. you said, all right, I see this new approach. It's going to be more coaching based. I now need money in order to shift to that. And how'd you get the money?
1: So what happened was I was going to do, I don't know if you have something like this in the States, but we have something called individual voluntary arrangement. And it's where you can make an arrangement with creditors and you only pay about 50% of the credit off, but you don't go bankrupt. So I was going down that route. And then they said to me, oh, by the way, you will lose your boat. I was like, well, that's kind of a bit pointless then. You know, I mean, I'll have nothing to live in. So I thought, well, I might as well go bankrupt. I might as well just go bankrupt the whole hog, you know, instead of kind of slaving away, trying to pay off. It sounds really bad to say that, but that was how I felt back then. Um, And then I realized, well, hold on, if I'm going to go bankrupt, why don't I have just one last push at making business work? Because, you know, what I've shared with you so far doesn't really tell the whole story of my ups and downs with my conference business. You know, I went insolvent twice with my conference business because I didn't think about corporation tax and I spent too much on one of my girlfriends and, you know, I mean, stupid stuff. When I look back, but I was a young, silly entrepreneur. So it's not like I was making loads of money and keeping loads of money. I was making loads of money, but wasting it and so on. So anyway, point being, I realized, well, I really want to be a business person. I really want my own business. So let me have it one last shot. So I sold my boat for 15,000 pounds. um, And that was all I had in the world. I had nowhere to live. I had 15,000 pounds, literally in a brown envelope, like some mafia bribe. And my ex-wife, my, my mate's ex-wife said, Nick, come and live with me. You can share my bedroom
0: for whatever bedroom. it was.
1: Happening. Share the bedroom.
0: Are you like, did you get to, to date a lot? Is this, is this a fun dating life that you had that caused you trouble? Or is it lack of that that caused you trouble? And this feeling that you're always on the outside and you need to spend your way in? I'm trying to get a sense of you on that i i mean my early life when i say early
1: life i mean that that sort of phase i would say i was you know from the age of 15 to 28 with one person i think it took me a long time to find my true identity so wow. i kept trying to find it in other people and getting more serious than i should have done at the time with with an individual
0: and i'm imagining then if you were with the same person since you were 15 that you felt like you were missing out on the prime of your dating life and this was you kind of catching up through the years, is that right?
1: <laughs> oh yeah, but when I moved in with my my mate's ex wife, it wasn't romantic. It was like it was like she wanted some rent, and I needed a place to live, and it was a really well, brilliant. But she said,
0: "Come place. stay in my bedroom," and it wasn't romantic. Yeah, it was yeah. just stay in my bedroom like two friends. Yep. We had two single beds. I put my okay. 15,000 pounds under, under my bed. Okay. And,
1: and, uh, and she would go to bed early. I'll go to bed late. she would get up early. I'll get up late. We just were like ships that passed in the night. It was, it was a nice little phase. And then I started dating a Chinese girl. And, um, and when she learned that I was sleeping in a bedroom with, with this other person, she was like, Nick, it's completely unacceptable to me that you're sharing a bedroom with another woman. And I was like, why? <laughs> but anyway, that was quite a <laughs> funny phase of my life. <laughs>
0: Um, all right, let me take a moment, talk about my uh first sponsor, and then we'll continue with this. Nick, mm-hmm. I gotta tell you that when I started Mixergy, I was dabbling with advertising and advertising did well. And then I started charging for my content. And at the time, people people gave me a real hard time about it. How dare you charge for your content? It should be free. Why don't you just make money from advertising? Didn't realize advertising doesn't make nearly enough. And when you charge for your product, in in my case, I said, I don't know what to sell. I'm going to start by selling older versions, older uh, recordings of my interviews, and then I'll add on to it. The thing was, when I started to charge, I got better feedback from my audience. I had people who could say, Andrew, this is good. But what would be even better is if instead of the interviewees talking about how they did it, they could teach us how we do it. And so I started dabbling in different ways to do that. And then we ended up with something we called master classes. And then the business really started to take off. We had an opportunity. I and then a team afterwards that came on to sell directly to the audience, which meant we had to listen to them more, which meant we had to create for them, which meant that we were self-sustaining. And if an advertiser was upset or didn't sign up or the ad market did this or that, or Facebook came in and lowered their price or whatever, we were still able to continue. And it held us going for a long time. Now, why do I say this in context of my first sponsor, Memberful? It's because I had to create so much of our software for Mixergy with a team of people who helped patch together a bunch of random software that happened to be available when we launched it's not necessary anymore. Memberful makes it super easy to sell content directly to your audience. It's called memberful because you turn your audience into members. You get to make money on an ongoing basis. You get to build a self sustaining business with your audience for your audience. And if you're doing it as a podcaster, you get to sell older episodes. If you're doing it as a, as a, Community manager, you get to uh, sell access to the community. If you've got other kind of content, you could do it there too. This is the tool that will help you do it. I want everyone who's out there listening to me to go and sign up for Memberful right now. If you go to memberfulcom Mixergy, you could get started with them right now, and they will make it super easy for you to do it. And by the way, Nick, I know there's a lot of software now that's in a lot of companies that are starting to tell creators, "We'll help you sell. We'll do this." What they do is they take a cut of your sales. They take. a a role between you and your customer. You don't need it. Memberful is there. It's available for people to try. They could try it right now if they go to memberful.com slash Mixergy. And it's it's just a terrific service. I should say also, it's so amazing. It was bought by Patreon, a name that most of us recognize. If you're a content creator, go to Memberful. Forget all these other tools that are out there for selling your content. Don't let them get between you and your audience. Own that relationship. And Memberful will make it easy. Memberful.com slash Mixergy. All right. You now had a little bit of money. You had a vision, which was, and then we'll talk about what the first step was. How you, would you describe that vision?
1: My vision was to be a better coaching school than the rest. And in fact, I remember my tagline at the time was creating better coaches. It was as
0: simple as that. That I just is what thought, you do. It seems like your method of entrepreneurship is see what's being done out there already that you could do too and maybe improve, right? Yeah. Okay. And so what were you going to do that was going to make a coaching better?
1: Do you know what? When I look back, um, nothing specific. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? We, we often delude ourselves think we've got something really unique. But actually, it's more about the way we apply ourselves to our idea that really makes the difference, not the actual idea itself. And so I kind of deluded myself we we're going to do a better job. But, you know, I don't know whether it was better. I just believed I could do an amazing job the best job i could do and it would be amazing <laughs> whether it's better than the rest i couldn't really say so it was you know the, the main thing was and i think a lot of new companies do this is you kind of go with that family feel. this is personal you know we're small so therefore we give you the personal service and that's fine but if that's going to be your message for the rest of your life, you're going to end up staying small. So it's an interesting one because that that's a typical kind of small company mentality, which is your differentiator is the fact you're small. Great, you have direct access to the founder. Great, but at what point don't you? And how do you then how do you then transition? So that was an kind of interesting challenge for me. It was all about it's Nick Bolton. I'm going to train these people individually. I'm going to do everything I can to make them the best coaches they can be. You know, it was like really mm. going all in on the idea. What of was me. the methodology for coaching? In in the sense of like, what were we teaching?
0: Yeah, if yeah, if you had to sum up your methodology, th- your approach, what was it at the time?
1: So there have been two phases of coaching in terms of what I teach. The first phase, my first school, was what you might call classic performance coaching. It was recognizing that. Um, most people have some idea of what they want, but they're not super clear on it. Once they get clear, they can then start thinking, well, what's the gap between where they are and where they want to be? They can then start thinking, well, what are my options to move forward to it? And they can start being held accountable to that. That that was my first framework. That changed a lot later on, but I guess you'll get to that slightly later. But yeah, that was my Mm -hmm. first one was really classic performance coaching.
0: Was it... I think you called it the smart school. You were going to do that whole smart goal system, which, right, which, what does smart stand for? I think it was the old GE approach, right? It's a specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. Ah, that's what what that framework is. You said, I'm going to take this thing that already works. I'm going to teach it. And then as you taught it, you started adjusting it. Were you going to, you were going to turn people into coaches, right? And they were then going to implement this with their clients. How did you get those early clients of yours who are going to be coaches?
1: Well, you remember that envelope of 15,000 pounds onto my belt and onto my bed? Well, that, this is funny looking back now, you know, it was old school. I would go to expos. You know, it would be like the mind, body, spirit show, the yoga show, the small business uh, show, um, the one life show, all these kind of shows that brought together people with stands and I would have a stand and I would stand there all day with one of those little nice pull-ups that said the smart school. And I'd be like, hi, are you interested in becoming a coach? And that ah, was it for the first few wow. years.
0: You know what? you keep talking about old school old school old school we're talking about mm. 2008 it's not that yes. long. it's it's that long ago but the technology was except that the smartphone was not up to speed back then it didn't have uh, i think apps until a little bit after you started yeah it's basically there the interesting thing for me is how many entrepreneurs that i interviewed got started in that 2008 period i wonder if it's because the world was in such financial chaos that people were willing to look for options and as terrible and scary as it was, it might've been one of the best times for entrepreneurship, at least for, for our type of entrepreneurship. Do you feel that impacted yeah. you that maybe people who are financially in trouble said, maybe this is a good direction for me?
1: Um, it, it could have been. I don't remember thinking that at the time. In fact, I remember thinking, wow, that was bad timing, Nick. You've just Mm. started a new company and the whole financial system collapses. But at the same time, I wasn't worried because I've always had this strong belief that you just have to focus on your part of the pie. You know, it doesn't matter who else is eating the pie or who else is not eating the pie. Just focus on your part of the pie that you're trying to get. And so that was my kind of attitude was just like, you can make this work. You know, you just need 12 people in a room to teach. And then you need another 12 people in a room and you need another 12 people in a room and you just keep doing it.
0: Got it. even in a terrible economy 12 people are hunting for a way to become coaches you just need to hunt for them all right what was it that you said at these conferences at these expos that convinced <laughs> people give me give me some of the magic that that helped lead to conversions
1: well i mean I, I didn't convert anyone at the expo what we do is we offer a free seminar um classic free seminar funnel so you know there's the expo people want to buy oh are you interested in coaching oh what's coaching chat, 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 chat. We're offering a free evening where I talk about what coaching is, how you can become a coach, yada, yada, yada. You get a room full of people could be as many as like, you know, 20 maximum back in those days. And you just hope some of them will be interested in convert. And they did, you know, I mean, it was just, I I was a really good presenter and a really good salesperson back then. I don't do any of that stuff anymore. But back then I used to, you know, I was really good at connecting with people and just presenting what my vision was and what I think coaching is. And and people would really like get excited and buy into it. I remember doing one, there were 14 people in a room and one of them was a husband who'd come along to stop his wife buying. This is not, this is no joke, Andrew, all 14 people, including the husband joined. That's mind blowing to me nowadays. But back then, that was the kind of, the, the, you know, the, the, that kind of close connection I was having with the prospects.
0: Did they also want you to teach them how to get clients themselves?
1: Yes. I mean, that's an interesting one for us nowadays. Um, but back then, yeah, it was part, it was integral because I'm an entrepreneur. I felt, I felt able to do that. It's wow. harder to build that into a, into a school when you're, you're no longer the one doing the teaching and your employees aren't entrepreneurs. And so you've got to kind of fight, figure out other systems. And so how did you
0: teach them to get clients back then when it was just you in a I room?
1: I used to do masterminding. So we had our course. The course was separate. This was how do you coach? And then I would run a free... I'm, I'm one of those people that wants somebody who becomes a customer. I I give them everything in a sense. Uh, and so I used to run this free mentoring group called um, Smart Minds and um, obviously playing on the smart school, but it was the idea of, hey, come together as a group. I'll bring in guest speakers I'll facilitate a space where, again, you do the work. I'll also teach you some concepts, like I'll teach you about copywriting or I'll teach you about selling. But in the end, it's also about what you guys do in this room to produce your vision, your strategy, your tactics, and that kind of stuff. So it was very much a classic mastermind, but it was all completely free because all I wanted was to make it work. You know, And the best way to make something work is to make your customers happy and to make them successful.
0: Um. All right. I see how you're, you're going on about this. You're saying you're teaching them how to get customers. Were you doing it like teaching them how to get customers online or were you, was it a different approach? It was back then. It was a pretty different approach. Bear in mind, I'm still getting customers
1: from expos. I often used to wonder if this think what AdWords would ever work for us. You know, and, uh-huh. and could we ever get customers from AdWords? That's what it was like back then. So, so we did talk about AdWords and so on back then. Facebook was barely, you know, it was barely out of, of 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 a nappy diapers, as you might say. You know, Facebook was still really new, um, and so it was much more about physical networking. Where can you go to meet people? Where can you? How can you connect to people? So it was, it was again, use that term, old school. It was old mm-hmm. school connections. So where would you send them to go meet people? Oh, wherever. I used to talk about the difference between formal networking and informal networking. So your formal networking is, is you know, your BNI. I don't know if you have BNI in America, but, you know, something like BNI, um, which is an, you get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, you go networking and all this kind of nonsense. That You've got your sort of formal networking, but then where's where's the informal networking taking place where you're not just going to be a network, you're going to be a human being. And so I'd say, look, look, find the space where you can just be. Who, who can you connect with as a potential client or as a referrer of clients just be amongst
0: humans oh you would send them to two networking events two places where they could go meet people and then in those sessions got it in those meetings they would uh connect with people and then sell to them all right i'm with you on this now the yeah. business is starting to take off but your systems were not that great you told our producer <laughs> you know what <laughs> do you know what i'm getting at
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. well the, what happened check there? For
0: two and a half thousand pounds well, yeah what happened there
1: <laughs> well, you know, I did tell you earlier that I was doing all the bookkeeping. Well, I was still doing all the bookkeeping for my coaching school, and I'm I'm a pretty rubbish bookkeeper. I've got a lot better now. Not that I do it, but at least I understand it really, really well. Um, but 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 I just was really bad. And then I remember an envelope turning up on my desk in my office, and it said, "Dear Nick, you never charged me for the coaching course. Here's my check for two and a half thousand pounds." And I was like, "Oh my goodness, that woman could have gone through that whole course." Completely free, and I've never known because my systems are so bad. I mean, it was
0: terrible. Why do you think your systems are so bad? Is it that you're a salesperson, and so you focus a lot on the sales and relationships, and less on process?
1: Yeah, I think so. I'm. am I think sales and entrepreneurship are very closely aligned in lots of ways because it's making things happen. It's getting results. It's that. It's that signing on the dotted line kind of mentality. And it's almost like once that's done, woo, you've had your success. You know. And it's also the other part that took my mind was the creativity. How do I make this school great? How do I make the, you know, how do I, how do I give my customers the best experience and how do I build
0: relationships that last? That was really where my mind was. I do admire people who are in partnerships. I mean, like romantic partnerships with someone who is more of a COO type who just loves Mm. to get into the systems and Mm. doesn't, doesn't crave the attention, doesn't crave the sales, doesn't crave the vision, just wants Mm. to create a process and bring order to chaos. And I, I've gotten to know a few people like that and it's just wonderful to have them. Well, I don't know if it's wonderful to have them in their personal life, but in their business life, it's just great. Um, yeah. in my personal life, I think i like to wing things a little bit more. All right, so now things are starting to come together. You're um, You're growing the business and then you end up having this other problem. And one of the problems is that you're starting to take on everything. And as we talked about, you weren't especially good at taking on everything. How did how did you deal with that?
1: Well, the first thing I, I remember reading The E Myth by Michael Gerber years ago. I mean, an absolute classic book, isn't it? And, and I remember the concept from that book was about the org chart. And you construct the org chart that would make your business run perfectly. And then you put your name in all of the boxes, and then you slowly replace yourself in each other's boxes until you're the just the name at the top. And so, in a sense, I did that, but I did it where I felt best able to, I didn't work from bottom up. I worked for where can I get the best bang for buck at this point. And the first place I, I felt I wanted to make a replacement was me as a trainer. I was training every weekend, every weekend, two days a week, every weekend, train, 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 because we, you know, we've been a B2C company. We were training weekends, more, much more so than weekdays. And so I decided the first thing I was doing was get, was get um, freelance trainers to start to replace some of that because that would free me up mentally um, and operationally to improve the business. So that was the first place. Um, And then from there, once I, once I did that, it was almost like the dam broke because I suddenly started to accept and actually enjoy the idea of people taking things off my hands. And at that point, it was like, okay, what else can they take off my hands? You know,
0: where am I, where am I strongest and where am I weakest? That seems like a curious place for you to get started. I mean, as a person who's not into doing the COO role of making sure that everything is flowing right, that the bills are paid and that the invoices get, get handled. It seems like that should have been where you would have let go instead of the presentation (laughs) where you're so good. You even close the person who's the husband who came in to stop his wife from signing up.
1: Well, it's funny, I, I I didn't stop doing the presentation part, the sales presentation. I mean, we didn't think of it as sales, but the, you know, enabling somebody to come into the school, I didn't stop that until much, much later, but it was the training part, the delivery of the actual course that I wanted to stop because it felt very repetitive to me after a while. Ah, okay. And, um That said, you're dead right. It was just that I didn't really know how to replace myself because it's almost like I had so little systems that I couldn't plug somebody into it. At least with the training, I knew how to plug somebody into that because I had processes. But the bookkeeping was like, I didn't want to be that person in the e-myth that just went, help me, save me. I didn't want to be that person, you know, just give it to somebody. and I needed to at least have some level of control before I started to systemize it with other people
0: ah, okay, got it. You want to have some process to hand over to somebody else who would run the process instead of saying, now you go figure out how we should be invoicing people. Got it. And then they could improve it with you. Okay. All right. We'll come back in a moment and talk about how that worked and how it didn't work. First, I should say really quickly, my site is hosted on HostGator. If you need a hosting company to host your website, I highly recommend HostGator. If you want a better deal than they offer everyone else, Go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. They'll make it super easy. Hostgator.com slash Mixergy. All right. So apparently this was working, but not so well. And then you had an idea of getting back on a boat to cure the not so well (laughs) part, right? What happened?
1: That shortcuts an awful lot. and and, And I don't want to take up time unnecessarily, but...
0: No, no, go ahead. Go If you want to give more depth than I just gave, I don't want to just cut you to the end. Let's let's explore the problem and then the solution.
1: So where we left off a second ago was like 2009, 2010. I moved onto a boat in 2018. So there was was like eight or nine years of solid business building that led up to me being able to retire, effectively retire um, onto a boat, brand new, built from scratch. It was a beautiful boat uh, because I made the business work. But that took a long time. Lots of mistakes, uh, bringing people on, letting people go, all that stuff. But that journey from struggling with my first employee to to the boat—that's a nine-year journey, and that's kind of like the meat of the whole. You know, the meat of the whole school was that it was it was everything. It was putting the systems in place, getting salespeople, getting operational people, getting many more trainers, getting finance people, just the whole kit and caboodle, you know, building a team in the Philippines, just that's, 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 that's the big journey there. How big is the team? Now, um, I, you know, I don't fully know the exact number, but it's like 30, like we're talking 35 or so. So wait, what do you have in the Philippines? What don't we have in the Philippines? We have pretty much everything. We have, you know, from customer service to finance to SEO to PPC to um, uh, uh, operational training admin, um, design, so, so so many things in the Philippines. Brilliant. Okay. I love the Philippines.
0: And then outside there, you have what? And you have your salespeople who are outside, who are, I guess, in the UK?
1: In, in the UK, we have predominantly the management team. We have the sales team because they went through the course. So they're all coaches who have been through the course. And so they really understand what they're selling. Um, And so, yeah, I would say it's mainly split between management and sales in the UK, a whole bunch of freelance trainers uh, spread across the world now. I mean, we're talking like, no idea how many now, I mean, so many and a decent sized team in the Philippines.
0: Wow, all right, that's a pretty big team considering yeah. two or so million dollars in in revenue, right? Two, three, what was it that you said last year? Last year, you know, I think it's about two and a half million. Two and a half million last year. That's a lot of people, but I guess it's because there is a lot of admin people, right? And um and the freelancers are there to sell your course, right? Freelance freelancers deliver the course. Deliver the course. Your salespeople who are full-time with you sell it. Exactly. Got it. What's your sales process now? I was trying to understand it. I went to uh, SEMrush where I saw that hmm. it's, yeah, I was spying on you to get a sense of what was going on. The weird thing that I saw was SEMrush says you get more traffic from, from Bing than just about any of my other guests. What are you doing on Bing? I feel, I felt like maybe that was the start of your funnel. Well, you Maybe know, it's your SEO I mean, people. I mean, yeah, I, I have. That's the thing. I haven't
1: been involved. I, I, I'm delighted to be. I say I can't answer that question very well, because you know the whole point of me retiring three years ago was not to be in the weeds anymore, and so I have to leave that to them to to kind of manage. But the sales process is pretty straightforward. It's organic and paid search, social media um and paid social media leading to predominantly um people can apply directly for the course but predominantly they come through the free webinar still doing a free webinar but we do it on zoom they have a three-hour experience of of animas and our course we talk about the course at the very, very end of that. And they either buy or they don't buy. And it's a really pretty straightforward. And then from that buying or don't buying, it's all done through consultation. They, they can't just buy because we've got to check that it's a good fit and, and so on. So we have a consultation process and that's where the salespeople come in.
0: I did see that on SEMrush also, that it's uh, the the two top pages on the site are one for uh, find out if coaching is right for you. And the mm-hmm. other one is to uh, get into that, that training that you talked about a moment ago. Yeah. All right. But from what I understand, this is the way it works now. But in order to get to this, you were systemizing, systemizing. You said, I'm systemizing a lot. I'm delegating a lot. And still it comes back to me. You were saying this to yourself. Mm -hmm. I need to find a way to make sure that people can work without me. And that's when, from what I understand, you said, I'm going to take off. I'm going to disappear for a bit. Let the team run it on their own and then see what happens when I come back. Is that right? Do I understand that right? That's pretty much right. Okay. Like what did I get wrong? And the, then how did that work out?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say like, like, like anything, the devil is in the details. And so for the first six months, I didn't, I hardly touched base at all with the team. I was like, guys, the philosophy is if there's a problem that you think you need my support on, you come to me. If there's not, and you're quiet, I assume everything's good. And then after six months, I checked something. And I was like, that doesn't look right. And as I started to dig deeper, I realized, hmm, things are are going backwards. Things aren't going as well as they should be from a commercial perspective. And so I went back into the team, shook it up a little bit. had to let a couple of people go, changed a few things and reestablished the team with a bit more oversight. I realized that I went too far too quickly. So I had to come back and ease my way out a little bit. And that was the first year. So this is 2019. That's the first year in the whole journey of my school that we made less
0: money than we'd ever done before, like than we did the previous year. And, this was, and, and this was after you'd taken off and then you come back and you see the business actually went down annually exactly. from the previous year. All right. Do you feel though it was worth it to do it that way? I feel like yes. sometimes it is, right? It's worth even yes. losing the money to take that drastic action. Otherwise, you're always going to be around. 100%. Okay and so then now you're basically stress testing it and seeing where the frailty is and coming back and addressing the frailty and and the fact that, that the sales dropped and maybe profitability dropped is maybe it's painful but it's probably helpful in the long run. Yeah.
1: It is because you know I mean you know we're not talking about coaching here but at the same time coaching the coaching philosophy influences everything I do and and for me the coaching philosophy is Decide what you want, face the truth of where you're at, and figure out what you need to do to get where you want to be. And, and so you can spend a whole lifetime in fear of what happens if I do this. But the fact is, I didn't want to be running that business at that level of detail for the rest of my life. So if I didn't do something that was going to change the pattern, I was going to get stuck. And so I, my way of changing the pattern was absent myself, You know, not completely... Uh, without any conversation, I was like, huh? "Where's Nick gone?" You know, we had a run-up to that happening, but at some point, guys, I'm not here. Mm-hmm. Let's. And I, I lost about, you know, from in 2018, we did about 750,000 profit, and in 2019, the year I left, we did 550. So we lost about 200,000. I came back, I shook things up, and we did 1.2 million, and and we're 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 back having another shakeup. You know, that's just the nature of it. I don't see this as being some sort of linear trajectory. I see this as a constant learning process where you're going backwards and forwards trying to figure out what's broken, what do I need to change? And I don't see that somehow I ever get fully away from it, but I have to move myself away enough that we see what's got to change.
0: I remember interviewing this one entrepreneur, I I forget his name, who started his business and told his people from the beginning, I'm going to make sure that I am not the person who has to, that this business isn't a job for me, but it's a business that runs without me. And he told his people Mm -hmm. from the start that he was gonna go take a trip. I think it was around the world or something where he couldn't be reached and everyone had to be prepared for that moment. And that helped create a sense of order. Um, I see the value of that. I see how that helped. One of the other things that you did, we've talked about systems. Uh, one of the other things you did was you started hiring, even though you hated hiring. And I, I'm with you. Hiring is such a pain. What was it that you learned about hiring and how did it help shape the business?
1: The biggest thing I've learned about hiring is that you don't know ever how to hire really, or at least I don't know how to hire. And I think you kind of have to accept that at some point. Like there's no genius way. I, mem- I remember reading a book called uh, the- uh, it's called Who. I don't know if you read that at all, but it's it's all to the do with The most recommended to hire. book
0: about hiring in all of my interviews. Who? Right. Yeah.
1: Okay. So we tried that. Did it work? Not particularly. I'm not saying it didn't work, but we didn't make it work. Mm-hmm. And so I've kind of just come to this point of just going, get people in, try them out, get rid of them quickly if they don't work. And that's that's kind of my philosophy now. Is like just just don't be too fearful. Um, do your best to hire, and then get rid of them if it doesn't work out. But, you know, on the whole, I tend to still hire on a sense of like connection and intuition in some ways, far more than the more technical stuff that who talks about. Mm.
0: All right. Now that you've got this in place, you're in a good spot professionally after years of struggle. What are you getting to do that you, that you're younger? You, the one who started (laughs) out would have said, I can't believe that this is going to be my life.
1: Well, it's a shame in a way that all of this happened at the start of coronavirus, of course. Um, you know, it's like I, I spent a beautiful year and a half cruising the canals and the, and the rivers of the UK with my wife. And it was brilliant. And we went to China. She's Chinese. So we went to China and we were there when the coronavirus suddenly happened. We were there in January 2019. And I said to her, we probably should fly back sooner because this is looking a bit dodgy. So we got back to London. And we're like, Phew, glad we escaped that of course, nobody escaped it. And so this last year has been difficult. You know, it's been not difficult business-wise, but we've been living on a six foot wide narrow boat. It's called a narrow boat for a reason. It's six foot wide, uh, 60 foot long. And that's kind of tough when you're in lockdown, you know, you you can't travel and you, and so You
0: you can't boat around, you can't get out of your boat and go explore. You're not allowed to do that. You have to stay on the boat you can get off the boat but all
1: the shops are closed you know you you or you have to wear masks everywhere so it wasn't the it wasn't the best year still you know it was still nice but it wasn't the best year and so it kind of led to us to a point of saying you know what we feel like we've done this let's move back to let's move back to land and so we've just gone into this apartment in london which is absolutely stunning right by the thames with beautiful terrace and so that is amazing i mean bear in mind that 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 water dripping through the ceiling was the start of my journey, and now I'm living in this absolutely gorgeous apartment with a terrace overlooking so the Thames. I love it. I mean, I feel now so full of opportunity. I wouldn't say that I'm living the life that I'm meant to be living yet. Not because it's not there. It's just that I think you're always moving towards something. It's a, in a very existential stuff, ex- existential way, you're always moving towards rather than being in. What are you moving and towards? So What's it, your
0: ideal that you that you're trying to get to?
1: nothing there is no there is no end point the, 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 what i'm moving towards is a constant movement through i said to my wife recently i love moving through
0: mm-hmm. life
1: that's always been my thing what that do that mean I move, moving through life what i mean is engaging and touching life as you go through it rather than thinking that when i get somewhere then i'll engage and touch it so i enjoy making sure that that i'm engaged in the journey of my life whatever that looks like even if it's even if it's not ideal, I don't see that there's a point. Actually, funny enough, my wife has got this, I don't know if this is a Chinese saying or, or, or where it's come from, but she says, I know that Milan condera wrote a book called Life is Elsewhere. And my wife, Dani, always says, ah, she always laughs and says, life is elsewhere. And I said, well, to me, life is everywhere. It's a different philosophy. So what does it's that like, mean? I, how, does that,
0: how does that impact the way that you live day to day? Or give me an example of something think, that you do differently because of this. Hmm, I,
1: have, I have almost zero anxiety I have not not because I've set my life up to be anxiety free, but because I don't care if I fail. I don't care what people think of me, but because I don't, I'm not judging myself by an end point. That I'm measuring myself against. There's no place where I'm saying when I get there, that that's what I'm going to call success. When I get there, I'll be happy. When I get there, I'll find my, I, I'll feel I'm financially free. Somebody recently asked me, and I was doing some business mentoring. And I did quite a lot of free business mentoring recently, and somebody said, "Nick, how would I know this podcast I want to start is, is was worthwhile?" And I said, "It should be worthwhile the second you start doing it," and that's what I mean by
0: ah, meaning engaging. Not, it can't you can't say it's worthwhile if I have a huge audience. It has to be worthwhile because I'm having an interesting conversation, or even a step before because I've learned how to set up a podcast. And if I'm not getting anything out of that, then it's that's the problem. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I get that. I get that approach.
1: The the passion has got to be in the in everything you're doing as you're doing it, even when you don't like it, because that's your life now. It isn't in the future. It's like here. What? How that's, could you like so something?
0: How could you be enjoying something or getting value out of something, even if you don't like it in the moment? But can you have an example. You know what, something it's contributing you've done? to. Um, ah, okay. Got it. So if the hassle of setting up the podcast for this person is a hassle and he hates it and he's not learning from it, he's not growing from it, then the way to look at it is to say, this is a step towards this thing that I will enjoy, which is the conversation. And that's why I'm going to enjoy doing this because it is a step in this delicious, whatever, uh, uh, yeah. uh, look, I don't know that I should call it delicious, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've called interviewing yeah. a lot of things. Delicious Is is not one up until now. <laughs> All right. I, get it. I, I have,
1: I have, I I have no vision for my, I mean, it sounds terrible to say this, but I have almost no vision for my future. I, the, the way I see it is I, I, I allow life to unfold around me as I act into it, if that makes sense. And then see what comes of that. And that's really, that's how I kind of live my life and my business. And it's been, you know, that's been the joy of it really is that kind of allowing it to unfold through my actions.
0: I started out prying into your personal life. Let me end with prying into your personal life a little bit. What are you investing your money in?
1: Well, that's interesting. I, I got into Bitcoin at the end of um, last wow. year in November. And um, I, I had a friend who was in Bitcoin years ago, and I just didn't understand it. I just kind of poo-pooed it. And then something something touched me around it last year, and I invested it, and I put a lot in, like 600k. And it did really, really well. And so I, I just kind of decided to cash it in
0: when it was around about $55,000. Oh, wow. And then yeah. we're talking about, so at the end of last year, it was under 20,000, right? We're talking about the end of 2020? I, I, I went in when it was about 15,000. 15, and then you hmm. cash it out at, wow. All right, so now what are you gonna do, real estate?
1: No, I don't fancy real estate. It feels like too much responsibility. I, I really don't like real estate at all, the idea of that. No, I've, I've been buying, buying art recently. And it's funny because I did a blog uh, – sorry, I did a post on Facebook recently where I, I don't – somebody said to me, Nick, you know, do you ever celebrate where you've got to? And I said, I don't really. I don't think of it in that way. But last year I invested in some art, some, uh, some various Banksy and so on. And, and I went to art school when I was 17. And I was broke from that age all the way through. You know I mean? You know my story now. And I suddenly went, my goodness, I've invested in art. How on earth did that happen? I'm an art investor. That's weird. Ah, so, so that's kind of that's like it was the, that That's the
0: beauty. The person who had someone else's shower water coming down into his <laughs> apartment now is at a place where he doesn't have that. And instead, he can invest in art and see this passion through. All right, yeah. congratulations on this uh, on this success. It's got to feel great to not just be there, but also to be there with this se- without the sense of impending doom and anxiety. <laughs> um, so many of my friends have gone through. I, I didn't realize this, like panic attacks and shingles mm. and stuff like that. That now I'm not I'm not worried so much about stuff in life, but I'm worried will I have that because it always starts, Nick, with. I thought things were okay. I was just driving down the road and then suddenly my heart stopped. I mm. just had that from a friend. I, they didn't realize they were carrying a lot of stress. So I'm trying to think, do I have mm. too much stress? Where is this going on? And I'm excited to see that you're somebody who does not have it. For anyone who wants to go check out your website, it's animascoaching.com. A-N-I-M-A-S coaching.com. True? True. Absolutely. All right, and for people who are listening to me who say, hey, I like what Andrew's doing. I want to do my own thing like that. Well, I host on HostGator. You can quickly host a WordPress site in quickly meaning under 10 minutes. Uh, All you have to do is go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. And when you're ready to sell your content to your audience, email newsletters, podcasts, content on your site, community, whatever it is, Memberful has got you covered. And it's just inexpensive, easy software to implement. All you have to do is go to memberful.com slash Mixergy to get started right now. Nick, thanks so much. Thank you. Bye, everyone.